Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity. It's been a while, I think, since we've been here. Maybe it's been six, seven years uh, since we've seen many of you. Many of you are new to us. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we're the Molsi family, and we are serving in Togo, West Africa. A lot has happened in those last uh, six or so years since we've been here. Some of you followed uh, the work of the Hospital of Hope. We will be returning to Togo in the first week of May as our plan. So we've been home for almost a year. Uh, we will be have been home a year by then. Uh, we decided we had a lot of traveling to do this year, so we uh, actually just are living in a 34-foot travel trailer. So that's been fun as well. There's a few times when your children stomp to their room, even though it's three steps, it'll shake everyone's life a little bit. <laughs> well, we are blessed to be a part of your mission um, outreach around the world. Your prayers and your support really are vital to our work and the work at the Hospital of Hope. We like to see ourselves a bit as an outpost of yours in Togo. And so I hope you see that that way as well. I know there's some of you that are very familiar with the Hospital of Hope, so I'm going to be telling a few stories this morning. And you may have followed some of this, but for some of this, uh, this is new to you. Melissa and I are Northwest people. We like to say that because we don't always feel like that in Togo where it's so hot all the time. Uh, we met here in Northwest. I was going to a seminary at the time at Northwest Baptist Seminary, and Melissa was going to the University of Washington. Uh, later on, we, we ended up getting married when Melissa was in UW Medical School. And later, um, we had finished. She was practicing. I had finished seminary, and I uh, was working as a youth pastor. We had two sons, and we felt God was calling us to Togo, West Africa. Well, um, that was, a, at that point, a life changer, and so we're going to share with you a bit of what God's done out there since then. We left for language school January 1st, 2013. Now, I grew up in northern Idaho in a little logging town where I think most people there, they just assumed would never leave our county, let alone the state. So when I finished high school and then college, uh, I didn't have any foreign language. So for me, uh, going to France and learning language uh, was a challenge for sure. Uh, in fact, I drove a car there before I knew even one word in French, which is a little frightening to think of now. But we, we, we bought a car, a sight unseen, from some missionaries that were leaving language school. And so when I got there, I could drive. But I was like, what does that sign mean? What does that sign mean? So it's not the best way to learn how to drive, probably. <laughs> well, uh, our language school was in the little tiny French Alps of uh, northern, I guess, western France. And it was a beautiful place to be. But honestly, uh, because that process was quite hard for me to learn language, it, it took um, a year and a half, which is pretty common. It takes a year to year and a half. And um, there's an option, actually. When we left for language school, we could either go to France or we could go to Canada. And in Canada, at the time when we left, the dollar was stronger by us going to France, and they said your French would be better. And so I can speak decent French now. Um, but honestly, throughout that process, there were a few times when I told my wife, it's a good thing that we actually came to France and learned French because... If I had gone to Canada, I could have driven home. And there were some nights I think that might have happened. Uh, it's harder to do in France, and so my mantra just became, uh, there's only one honorable way out of this, and that's straight through, so let's just do this thing. Uh, which isn't a terrible mantra for life at times. Well, uh, after finishing language school, along the way we added Ezra, our fourth son. He was born in France, it helped Melissa learn a little medical French that way, right? Her vocabulary when she was in the hospital, in the French hospital, having a baby. But... When Ezra was four months old, we headed to Togo, West Africa, and we were blessed to be able to get there a few months before the Hospital of Hope opened. Um, that allowed Melissa to help out with some of the nurses' aid training, and then I was able to, to help with uh, some of the initial process of getting the hospital ready for the opening day. That's our family there. Uh, there's a little picture of where Togo's at uh, in, the, in the scheme of Africa. 
Um, we live, of course, in northern Togo, which is way up north. It's dry and dusty most of the year, and then we have about two or three months of uh, fairly rainy, rainy periods. And there's the Hospital of Hope um, from an aerial, aerial view. Melissa works out there as a hospital. She a hospital doctor. She sees people in the clinic a couple days a week, and then she does long calls in the hospital uh, to cover uh, the urgent needs as well um, each week. And then we have an opportunity to speak into the villages and the ministry out there. I work in the hospital as the hospital's uh, business and, and financial director, and so um, some office work, and then some days I'm out in a village under a tree with one of our chaplains helping uh, teach uh, a Bible study, and that's an exciting uh, time for us as well. As we uh, looked at opening the hospital, there's kind of a tagline that came out, and it was hope in a land of despair. Because you see, every year, uh, maybe, maybe you're familiar with this, but every year there's what we call the happiness report or the happiness index. And somewhere in the world, there's a group of people who index every country based on your gross domestic product, based on your, your ability to have a job and, and availability of health care and things like this. And throughout the entire world, every country is ranked as far as the happiest and the least happy country. Anybody have an idea what's the happiest country usually? What do you think, young man? Denmark, you're right, actually. It's usually Denmark or Holland, one of these countries where you ride bikes a lot and work very little. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, that was kind of rude. Huh? <laughs> the US comes in about 11 or 12, usually. And in 2015, when as we uh, began opening the Hospital of Hope, that was the year we opened, the dead last in that list was Togo. In fact, in the, even in the States here, almost all of your papers, because people sent me clippings, and there were papers that said, least happy country in the world, Togo. Well, if you had arrived in Togo, and some of you have been there, and you arrived at the capital in, in Lome, which is somewhat developed for an African country, and you'd ask people on the streets, first of all, inform them they live in the least happy country, they might have been surprised. But if you'd ask them, what is the least happy city in this least happy country? I'm convinced many people would have said Mongo. And I don't think that's a stretch, because in, Mon in, in Togo, Mongo is viewed as this underdeveloped, backwoods town. We have 30,000 people, but our water is all provided through a huge pipe that comes from the polluted o Oti River. Uh, our power at that point was all based on a big, huge generator, which ran the entire town. And when the president of Togo wanted to have a birthday party, and he needed power for his birthday party before the hospital was open, there were several days where the town of Mongo, 30,000 people, went without any power because the president had arrived with a truck and hauled their generator out for his birthday party because he looked around and said, where is it going to matter the least? And so that's a bit of a backdrop to, to Togo and, and to Mongo and to this dry, dusty corner where I have met police officers and I've met military officers who were given a choice. They'd, they'd been caught doing something they shouldn't have been doing and they were given a choice. You can get fired or you can spend two years in Mongo, and I've met military and police officers who are there because it's punishment for them. Well, that's the backdrop. We didn't know quite the extent of uh, the country's view of Mongo, but God did, and he allowed us, many of you, to pray and to build a hospital over many years and millions of dollars that springs up in the middle of this dry, dusty corner. And so in February 26, 2015, as we looked at celebrating the opening of the Hospital of Hope, it was an exciting day, and in that morning, uh, it's kind of funny because, uh, see, there's a large number of American missionaries there, and when the president of Togo announced that he was coming to the opening of our hospital, it kind of changed things, and the president's 
planning party kind of took over in some items. And so the night before, they were putting huge tents up and huge speakers, like taller than I am. And that morning as we woke up, our house is just a two, three hundred yards behind the hospital on the compound. I heard music playing already. And at six o'clock in the morning, I, under, I recognized an American tune because these people in Togo wanted the Americans to feel at home. And so they played a song we all appreciate, which was Hotel California. <laughs> For the next six hours, they played Hotel <laughs> I didn't know that song that well before, but I can tell you most of the lyrics now. And I still remember there's a line in that song that says, this could be heaven or this could be hell. And I thought, well, right now I have an opinion on that. But <laughs> That was the uh, opening day. And it was an exciting day because we had crowds of people that came onto our property. In fact, when about 5,000 people were on our grounds, the military closed the gates and said, the president's coming, we can't risk more people. But if I had looked down the street into Mongo, about a half mile down, I would have seen a crowd of people like this. People who for years had not had hope, that just wanted to get a glimpse of something good happening in their community. And so that's the backdrop. And throughout the day, we had the president of Togo. He came and he spoke. Uh, there were missionaries that came and spoke. It was an exciting day. We had tribal dancing. They had all kinds of things. And we gave the president of Togo a tour of our brand new hospital. And he televised that throughout all of Togo. And if you had got to the bottom of this great day, some of you have met Todd DeKrager. He was a, a surgical PA who came to our corner of Togo after spending years working at the Southern Hospital to get experience. But his whole purpose in getting that experience was to move north to our dry, dusty corner of Togo, to work among a community where it's mostly Muslim, for people that had never heard the gospel before. And that day, as uh, Todd and, and Alan, a, a good friend of mine, and, and I helped with so many details, Todd said to me, this is the happiest day of my life. He had seen God do the impossible. He'd had his fingerprints all over that place, even the, the blueprints. He, he'd changed walls. He'd moved things around. He was up there on weekends to work. And this was a dream coming true, to see God pull off the impossible. Well, this morning we're going to talk about uh, a message I've titled, uh, Hope in Difficult Times. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. If you'd like to turn there, you can. If not, I think I'll put it up here on the board as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There's a lot here. And as we look at this this morning, we're looking at a letter that's written by Peter to people who are discouraged, people who are hurting. They're, they're discouraged because they've been persecuted for their faith, but Peter provides encouragement. His main message to these people is that they are to be people who trust God, live obedient lives, and in the midst of their persecution, remain people of hope. Now, now there's two different types. When I use the word hope, there's all kinds of different ways we use that as a culture. See, some of us think, oh, I really hope the Seahawks will win the Super Bowl again. Well, that's maybe futile hope, or it's a desired result. 
but it's not likely, right? It's just like, well, I hope this happens. Uh, there's also another type of hope, though, that Peter's using here, and this is a biblical hope. This is a certain hope. This is a hope that says, it's a desire for something that I'm certain is coming my way. This is the Christian hope. However uncertain our times, however uncertain our circumstances, however God may answer our prayers, we know for certain he will work it out for good. That's the hope we have, and that's the New Testament hope, and so I don't want us to get the the word hope mixed up here. We are to remain people of hope in difficult times, and that requires three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, remaining people of hope in difficult times requires that we remember who we are. Peter concluded verse 12 by promising that the Lord's favor is on the righteous, but he will punish evildoers. He drew an inference from verse 12 into verse 13. It follows, therefore, that no one can ultimately harm those that are zealous for doing good. The promise of the heavenly inheritance guarantees that the hardships of this life do not constitute the last word. Did you catch that? The hardships of this life aren't the end. That's not the final word. Peter is not promising believers that they would escape rejection, that they would escape harm. Suffering exists, people. We all know that, right? We've been through difficult things. Instead, Peter is assuring his readers that nothing can ultimately harm them if they continue to walk in God's path. If you look back at this verse, uh, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? First of all, implied as followers of Christ, we should be people who are zealous. That's a really super strong word there. Zealous for what is good. We're not just like okay with it, I'll let it happen, but we're zealous. We're the people that are, that are trying to help good things happen. And generally, if you're that type of person, things aren't, you're not going to be persecuted for that. But sometimes you will. It says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And some of your Bible versions say you are blessed. If you dig deeper into this, it really the sense is both things. There's a promise like we hear on the Sermon of the Mount. Those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, there's a blessing coming. That's there. But there's also a sense that as followers of Christ who understand that we are in his hands despite the steps that we walk through, we're blessed people. We face difficult times as blessed people. It's part of our DNA. In the first year of the hospital being open, we saw all kinds of encouraging situations and so much heartbreak. So much heartbreak. As we... uh, encountered situations, there's one that stands out to me, and and maybe you've heard of um, my recounting of the story of Maurice, a young 19-year-old man who was playing soccer less than a half mile from the hospital. While playing soccer as a 19-year-old young man in high school there, he uh, broke both of the bones in his lower leg. His family was off on a trip to Lome, our capital, and wouldn't be back for a few days. His sister and other relatives helped him home. And for the next few days, they brought him food, They brought in the village healer and others to look at him and do things. And when his parents arrived two or three days later, they realized Maurice was in bad shape. And so they brought him to a clinic by taxi not far from where they lived. The the clinic looked at him and said, he has to go to a hospital. And so Maurice arrived, and my wife was on call that day, and she realized it required surgical. And so she called in the surgeons, and they realized in order to save Maurice's life, he had to lose his leg. I took this picture uh, when I was helping uh, one of our short-termers through the hospital, and I talked with the family, and it was a devastating situation. The family is off to the side, and they're, they're pretty much in tears, thinking if we'd only been home. 
Marus is fighting back tears, trying to be strong, but he is thinking, my life is over. You see, here in the States, you can get a prosthesis, you can live a fairly normal life, but Marus has never seen a Togolese person that had a job with no leg or a family. All he's ever seen is the people that don't have legs that hobble up to the taxis as they roar through his town and beg for the coins just to survive for that day. That's what he pictures his life as. And so for the next few days, as Marus lay in his bed and his chaplains in our hospital came and offered to pray for him, he was pretty stoic and pretty understandably, just leave me alone. I just, I just want to think about things. And, and as the days went by, Marus started to ask questions. He'd seen the Jesus film from his bed a, a number of times by then. It's shown twice a day. And he started asking a question or two of the chaplains. He started letting the chaplains pray with him. And Maurice ended up staying a long time in our hospital because of his injuries. Months later, when Maurice left our hospital, it was, after a, it was a different young man. It was a young man who I had seen pull his bed out of the room he was laying in because he wanted to be cooler because it was so hot in his room. And he'd spent hours rereading the New Testament. He'd gone through all of our Bible study material. He was excited about who Jesus was. He didn't know why someone hadn't told him this before. And he had read the New Testament several times by the time he left the hospital. See, he was a new man. And, and right before we left for furlough, I got to go and be a part of uh, seeing Marus get his prosthesis, which was made right there in Togo. And I was standing there with one of our chaplains, uh, chaplains <laughs> Togolese chaplains. I put that together, chaplains. <laughs> Togolese chaplains. And he said to him, you know what? It really was worth losing what I lost to gain what I gained. You see, Maurice realizes no matter the difficult days ahead of him, and there are many still in front of him, he faces those as now a blessed person. And it wasn't just that, but he actually asked one of our other missionaries, Do you, have you ever seen someone that doesn't have a leg who's a pastor? Because he's thinking, maybe I could be the person to share this news with my village, with my family. And I think God is going to use Maurice in, in exciting ways, but Maurice understood follower of Christ, we enter difficult days um, with hope. We know who we are. We're blessed people. Sometimes I get ahead of myself here. Knowing who we are, uh, really knowing who we are, changes things. Regardless of our situations, regardless of our circumstances, we are blessed. That's the first, I think, ingredient of facing a difficult time. But the second one is hope in difficult times requires that we rely on Christ. It says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The point here really is that we are to be people who trust God. It says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The point is, those that are persecuting you, the problems that you're facing, we can focus on that. And we do, as Christians, I believe, we see a problem that seems insurmountable, and we spend so much time figuring out how to conquer it. And very little time devoted to saying, what does God want in this situation? praying for assistance and facing the situation. Rather than fearing the actions or decisions of other people, we should do what's right and trust Christ for the outcome or the strength to go through whatever is thrown our way. This idea to, to give reverence to Christ means to really believe that no one's human opponents is truly in control of our events. The reverence will show itself in a firm and steady confidence as Christ, the Lord of our lives. And the King, who even now has angels has angels and authorities and powers subject to him. See, that changes things. When, when Christ is properly placed in, as the Lord of our lives, it's not a personal decision. It's a matter that touches everything we do, thoughts, decisions, and actions. 
There have been many occasions in the last five years when we have had to come to the point of saying, I don't know what's in front of us. I don't know what the next step is, but we need to rely on Christ and just walk through this difficult day. February 26, 2016. Now, this was going to be a huge celebration for the hospital. Because, you see, we at the Hospital of Hope, no one in our team, there's 30 or 40 missionaries out there with us, none of us had ever opened a hospital before. We, we had zero experience in that. Few of us had experience running 120 Togolese employees. That's completely out of our, our comfort zone as well. And so as we look forward to one year anniversary, we said let's do something that points our employees to the fact that this is a God-sized thing that has happened here. We couldn't have done this. And we want to give all the glory to God because it's very possible, I think, sometimes to steal God's glory and say, you know what, well, yeah, I, I had a business training, and so I can understand how this worked out. No, that, that's nothing to do with it. Like, this is a completely a God thing. And so we wanted this day to be a, a moment that pointed everyone to God. And so a couple weeks before, we started planning, how is this going to happen? What type of events will we have? Well, about two weeks before our planned event, uh, Todd DeKrieger, this man whose fingerprints were everywhere, got sick while he was attending a wedding. And we thought at first he had food poisoning, and that didn't go away. And so he treated himself for um, typhoid and malaria. And there's some things we face quite often. And so he tried all those, and it didn't get any better. And they're just our neighbors right across the, the lawn. And so at some point, Jennifer, his wife, came over and said, Melissa, would you come look at Todd? I, I just don't understand why he's not getting better. And she looked at him, and other doctors came down, and they decided Todd really needed to be hospitalized so we could monitor him and start getting some IVs into him and things like that. And so we took him up to the hospital, and um, a couple days before February 26th, in the early morning hours, we loaded Todd into a borrowed ambulance from the military across the street, and we had arranged for an air transport to get Todd to Germany so he could get good medical care. And so we loaded him into the ambulance in the dark of the morning, and I followed with our van with Jennifer, Todd's wife, and her father, and we left out of town, and I still remember just following that ambulance and just praying, God, help all the things that have to go right to go right today. Because we had to be at a certain time at the airstrip to meet up with the airplane, and and about a half hour into this trip, um, about a half hour in, they pull over, and I pull in behind, and they say, well, the serpentine belt, well, if you know anything about cars, it's kind of important, and most of us don't carry an extra one. It's broke. This thing is not moving. And we had to think through, well, what are we going to do here? And so my first thought was, well, let's, um, we first of all said, let's try to wave down a truck and see if a truck could maybe pull us. And if you've been to Togo, you understand that trucks that come to Togo, they have, I always say, lived a successful life elsewhere. So they usually, they, they lived a fun, happy life in Europe. They retired and thought their life was over. And then they were hauled to Togo. And the brakes weighed so much, they left their brakes there and arrived in Togo. <laughs> and so that's pretty much all of our trucks. They're beat up. They look like they should have just died years ago. And so this morning, as we waved down first truck, second truck, and they didn't even stop, I thought, not a problem. They don't have their brakes. Um, but the third truck, the third truck came by, and to this day, well, first of all, I tried hooking up my van to it, and that didn't work because my van won't pull that huge ambulance. But the third truck was one of the best trucks to this day that I have ever seen. The gentleman pulled in. He was willing to give this crazy plan a try because he didn't have a tow strap, and we had found in the ditch and beside the road there a rope and this webbing. And neither of them would have worked by themselves, but we said, let's twine this together and see if this 12 foot of this thing will pull this vehicle. Now, 
Those of us that were there maybe saw this as a bigger miracle than you do because in Togo, people walk beside the road and they pick up everything that's usable. And for the fact that we pulled in, broke down, and landed in a spot where we found a rope and a web, I look back at that and say, God had a plan. He wanted to show us in the weak things of this world, he could do something very strong. We put that together, and for the next almost hour, we bumped through potholes, we went through a mountain pass, and these two vehicles never tapped each other, and that rope never broke. And we got to the airport, and we gave God praise because we said, God has done something great today, and we got to be a part of it. And you can see the rope there. It's not much. <laughs> it, it should not have pulled that vehicle. And as Todd's father-in-law stood on the airstrip and just gave God praise and also prayed, giving his daughter and his son-in-law into God's hand and saying, please, God, get them help in Germany. We went back to the compound, and we gathered the hospital team. We gathered the missionaries that were there, and we had a huge prayer meeting and just said, God, we need your help. Please help Todd. He's the heartbeat of this place. He's the one that recruited most of us. And yet in the final hours of that day, Jennifer FaceTimed us. We were over at the house with the boys, and she FaceTimed, and she said, please continue to pray. We've arrived in Germany, but Todd's not doing well. And then in the wee, wee hours of the morning, I sat at a kitchen table as Jennifer over FaceTime or Skype told her boys, I'm sorry, your dad's passed away. We faced a heartbreaking moment of our friends, people that are like family to us, losing their spouse, their father, our hospital employees. And when we announced it to the hospital employees, and some of them collapsed in tears just on the ground. They'd been recruited by this man. And we faced... What does it mean to go through what God has in front of us? A difficult day, because not only did we learn we had lost Todd, but we, lost, we learned that Todd had actually contracted a disease called loss of fever, which until that point in Togo was undocumented. They never had a case, they claimed. And it's similar to Ebola. And so we face now, is there a, a public health crisis that's out there? People were frightened and also at a loss. And one of our close friends, uh, Andreas, he's a... A nurse from Samaritan's Purse came down with the symptoms, and we realized he had a, a loss of fever as well. And so uh, Samaritan's Purse actually evacuated him back here to the States, and he spent about two months recovering because we caught it early and realized what he had at that point. Well, the days that came along, though, after that made us realize that we had an option. We knew who we were. We were blessed people. But were we really going to rely on God? Because in a situation like that, there's all kinds of emotions. And when you guys are stuck in difficult times, there's emotions too. There's fear. Can I face this? There's calls from the states from well-meaning family and churches saying, maybe it's just time to come home for a while and let things cool down. Can you imagine the devastation if 30 missionaries had lined up their white cars and vans and just left town because it's too hard? But we had a difficult assignment ahead of us as we were to be modeling what it meant to rely on Christ in front of those that were believers and weren't believers as they wondered, would the hospital close? And, and we, we had an opportunity every day to say, will I fear the things here and will that take my heart away from what I'm supposed to be doing or will I rely on Christ? I'm not saying we did it perfectly every day, but that's how each of us face difficult times, right? Every day getting up and saying, today I'm going to try to keep my focus on Christ. Well, the third point, I think, in facing a difficult time is to remember that we are still called to be people that radiate hope. 
You see, Todd passed away one year to the day of our grand opening. Grand opening was February 26, 2015. Todd passed away on February 26, 2016. It's God's way of just reminding us, I believe. He's still in control here. We had an opportunity to walk through difficult days with friends, but we had an opportunity also to share hope. The next verses here say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. And yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is a part that sometimes we get stuck on. It says it right here. I got to believe it, but it is God's will to walk through suffering sometimes. I I agree. Sometimes suffering is is self-caused. I make poor decisions, there's suffering. But you know, sometimes God just wants us to walk through a difficult time for his glory. Peter is assuming in this passage the inward hope of Christians will result in lives so radically different that someone's going to ask you for the hope that is in you. And we have to first of all say, what is it I'm hoping in? If I'm hoping in exactly the same thing as the world is hoping in, I'm hoping to retire at 65, get in an RV, and look for painted rocks all over the USA, people probably aren't going to ask you for the hope that's in you, right? But if your faith, your life is based on a hope that is grander than that, then there should come a moment when they look at your life and say, how you treat your kids, how you treat your family, how you treat coworkers who aren't treating you correctly is different. Why is that? And you will have an opportunity then to share with them the hope that is in you. Because we are Christians, we have a reason for a hope. Um, there's, a, there's a part of this we don't want to skip over. Do it with gentleness and respect. I have tried the method where you argue someone into the kingdom of heaven, mostly with family members. I don't think there's a lot of success there. We're called to be people that just share God's hope with gentleness and respect. And having a good conscience. I think that's important not to look over also because the idea here is it's very possible there's some sin in my life that's keeping me from being a hope bearer. I need to look at my life. Am I, is there something that's keeping me from sharing the hope? Is my hope placed in the right way? And if so, at some point, I believe someone should come to us and say, what is it about you that's different? And then we have a response that can let them know that God in his mercy has caused me to be born again when I understood what Jesus did on the cross. And today I live knowing that I won't face eternity as someone who's punished for the wrath in my life, but instead I will live forever with him. And because of that, I face life differently. Now that should cause people to ask why once in a while. On February 26, 2017, we said we don't want to have a grand, huge event. But Jennifer DeKrieger and the boys had come back to join our team because they still feel God called them there. And we wanted to have an opportunity to say it's been two years since the hospital opened. We've seen thousands and thousands of people. We've seen heartbreak and we've seen huge success. And we still owe it all to God. And we also wanted an opportunity to remember Todd and his sacrifice. And so... I think still of the unique platform that Jennifer DeKrieger had as she spoke to more than 400 people and reminded them that, yes, Todd in many ways had sacrificed his life for the people of Togo because he had left a comfortable job in the U.S. to serve the people of Togo. 
But that wasn't the aim of her discussion as she talked with more than 400 people. Her aim of her discussion was, that's just a small picture of someone who left a much greater place for a much greater purpose. And she got to point people to Jesus Christ in a unique way that I don't think many of us ever expected. You see, when Todd passed away, we had Bible studies going on in seven different village visits. And all of those Bible studies, I can point back to a surgery patient. Todd was a surgical PA. He covered surgeries at the hospital, sometimes for months without help. But those patients spend so much time at our hospital that they see they're treated differently at our hospital. We don't treat people different based on uh, how rich or poor you are or what tribe you're from. At our hospital, we try to treat everyone the same, and we hope to treat them with a piece of the compassion that we believe God would have us to do. And so out of that comes people whose lives are changed, and then they invite us to go to their village and share that truth with their village. And when Todd passed away, every village Bible study was a product of surgery patients. Um, I think it's important to remember when we face hardships, we do it as people who understand we're blessed people. We're called to rely on Christ, and then we're still called in the midst of the painful moment, the midst of the difficult moment, to be people that have hope. And so I want to share with you just a few words from Jennifer DeKrieger's story. Um, Jennifer and the boys are coming back to Togo. Uh, They're on furlough right now. You can pray for them. She'll be returning as a mom with uh, leaving her oldest son in college this fall and coming back to her home in Togo. Um, But I think uh, I'm going to read some of the email that she sent to our team and maybe to some of you the day that Todd passed away because I believe that email really points us to each of these factors. She knows who she is. She's relying on Christ. In the midst of it, she's sharing hope. On February 26th, Jennifer DeKrieger wrote, Today Jesus called Todd home from the work he was doing, planting and harvesting in Togo. Todd poured out his life as an offering to God in Togo, and I know that Todd would similarly encourage us who remain here for a little while longer to also be faithful in our service to our King. My heart is overwhelmed with unspeakable grief. For myself, for our boys, our extended family, and the Hospital of Hope team, I cling only to the gospel and the certain hope of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Even in my pain, I believe that our sacrifice, that Todd's sacrifice, was worth it. I believe that the Great Commission is a cause worth dying for. In the midst of my grief, I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. In the midst of that hard, difficult moment, Jennifer DeKrieger shared hope with us, shared why it was she was there, and still shared that she was a blessed person. I don't know what triumphs or what tragedies you have faced in the last few years or which ones will come, but we're called to face those as people of hope. And we're called in the midst of difficult times to rely on Christ, to remember who we are, and to share hope with those around us.